0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for this new day and this opportunity to meet together to study your word. Lord, we thank you that your mercies are new every morning. And Father, one of the greatest mercies that we experience is the privilege of being able to read and understand and grow through your word. Our Lord, this morning we pray that you would just do that in us, Lord, that through your Holy Spirit, give us understanding. Lord, give us clarity in these verses, these chapters we look at. Help us to see how your heart broke because of the iniquity, the sin committed by Israel. And Lord, how, Lord, when we step over that line and transgress, Lord, when we miss the mark and sin, our Father, how it grieves your spirit. So Lord, help us to live lives that are pleasing to you, Lord, to turn away from the temptations and the desires to follow after the things of this world. So speak to us now, we pray, as we study your word together in Jesus' name. Okay, so we're going through this study uh, of the minor prophets again the minor prophets not any less in terms of importance simply that their books are typically shorter than the what we call the major prophets isaiah jeremiah Zeke, and daniel um, and we started going through the book of Hosea. now say uh, i'm falling in love with this man in terms of the writing the heart that he had for god the, the obedience uh, to follow god in a very challenging situation that god places him in And yet God had a plan and a purpose in these things. And ultimately, it was to show to the nation of Israel God's own heart. Uh, Hosea is this great character that we see. Um, Just looking again chronologically where this fits, somewhere uh, in the region of about 790 to 720 BC, somewhere in that time frame. Uh, Certainly we know it's in the latter part of the northern kingdom, the kingdom of uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, uh, is that as they are about to be conquered by the Assyrians and there's this threat looming of judgment, it's during that season that Hosea is ministering to the nation, speaking God's word to them of what was to come. And just to remind you, we've got the northern kingdom known as Israel, we've got the southern kingdom which was known as Judah, the capital of Judah was Jerusalem. The capital of the northern kingdom was Samaria. Uh, and so these two uh, places we read about in the book of Kings, the book of Chronicles specifically, Kings tends to give us the history from the northern kingdom's perspective. Chronicles tends to give us the history from Judah's perspective. So if you're reading those two, you'll, you'll become sensitive to the, the slightly different perspectives that Kings and Chronicles are written from Um, They cover a lot of similar ground, obviously, um, but you'll find details in one account in Chronicles of Nine Kings and vice versa. G. Campbell Morgan said this, We have in the book of Hosea one of the most arresting revelations of the real nature of sin, and one of the clearest interpretations of the strength of the divine love. No one can read the story of Hosea without realizing the agony of his heart. Then, lift the human to the level of the infinite and know this, that sin wounds the heart of God. It's a staggering thought, isn't it, that we can, by our actions, wound God. And yet the New Testament tells us exactly that, that we can grieve the Holy Spirit of God when we allow sin in our lives. And the measure of the problem is seen in the cross. That Jesus willingly shed his blood to pay for the sins of the world. And it's easy to look at that and think, well, it was just that kind of, it was just that event and Jesus died. You know, but when you think of all of the sacrifices that had taken place through the Old Testament, you read the book of Leviticus and you read of the sacrificial system that was set up, the various um, sacrifices they had. The, the sin offering and and uh, trespass offering, all these kind of different things they had. The peace offering and so on. And the, the amount of animals whose blood was shed, it, it starts to become uncomfortable. And you start to realize the real horror of sin from God's perspective. We are so comfortable with sin because we're so used to it that we tend to trivialize it and think that it doesn't really matter that much. But It does. And it cost the death of God in the person of Jesus Christ to pay the price. That's how great a price had been amassed for the sins of the world. Well, we are carrying on through this study. We've gone through the first three chapters, which very much give us the life of Hosea and that which God called him to, to marry this unfaithful wife uh, as an example of God's love for his unfaithful people, Israel. But now the the idea is going to shift. We're going to move really away from seeing Hosea's life given to us. And Hosea is going to speak directly for God, regarding God's controversy with his people. So these are the the chapters we're in from 4 now up to 10. We won't, of course, do all of that this morning. um, But we're going to be in that section. Again... Hosea's personal life is going to fade into the background, effectively. The rest of the book is going to be prophetic, looking at what was about to come. Now, some of the prophecy was very near field. In other words, it was going to happen in a very few years from the time that Hosea was speaking at. Some of that is still yet to take place. And we'll touch on both of those things this morning. And it's out of that heartbreak that Hosea himself had endured in his own family situation that he now speaks to the nation. Now, sometimes God allows us to go through that type of situation. But it's through that broken heart that God can speak. One of my favorite accounts in scripture is that of Gideon. And how Gideon started off with this army. They were outnumbered four to one. But you know, four to one, you think, well, maybe, maybe we could just do it. And then God whittles it down and he ends up with just 300. And, And it's a crazy situation. There's no way that His little band of men can defeat the enemy. How does he do it? Well, by following the law, by being obedient. But the real key is the way the victory is won. Gideon tells his men to go stand around the battlefield, around the hills where the enemy were down below in the valley. And they're to have these pitchers, these kind of clay pots, if you like, and inside they were to have a candle or a lamp. And they're to light these lamps, and when... The trumpet was going to sound when the the, the sign was given. They were to break these clay vessels. And of course then the light would shine forth. And you realize that God gets the victory because of the light shining through broken vessels. A lovely picture how God works with us. God sometimes allows us, like Hosea here, to be that broken vessel. But it's his light shining through that becomes such a witness to those around and brings the victory. Well God is going to spell out the specific charges. You now those really are going to be lawlessness, immorality, ignorance of God's word. It's interesting. You know, lawlessness we can kind of understand that. Immorality, again why that's why we understand why God would judge that. The other one of course is idolatry, which really is covetousness. But ignorance of God's word is in that list. And God holds them accountable for knowing his word. Ignorance is not an excuse. Interesting list though, isn't it? Because when we look at our nation today, don't we see all of those things? Lawlessness? Yeah, we see that all around us. Yeah, it used to be the case that you think of places like New York. Yeah, there was once a time that New York had more crime than a lot of Europe combined. I think it was last or year before last. London was catching up with New York in terms of the number of murders. And sadly, so many of those murders with young people, there's a lot of knife crime, and of course that's still going on, that's still a problem. The lawlessness surrounds us. Yeah, there was once a time that you could go out of an evening when it was dark, and go for a walk, go to walk your dog, whatever. Now you don't really want to be going out and walking around the streets at night. Even in a place like we live be very careful. Immorality. Well, immorality is the fuel of the entertainment industry. They promote immorality. I mean, I've, I'm glad to say that I've not watched it, and I will not watch it. But there was an article that just uh, popped up last night on my phone uh, about Love Island. And, and I don't really know much about it, but just few sentences of that little thing that popped up. It's just encouraging immorality in the most perverse possible ways. And people think this is entertainment. Ignorance of God's word. Well, we are certainly there as a nation. It's staggering how many churches have no concept of what God's word is. And they choose not to teach God's word. And that they elevate man's wisdom and human opinions and little motivational talks to the level of God's word. Do you know, in, in the business world, some years ago, there was a real move um, to take the things that were being done in the church and adopt some of those principles and bring them into business because they recognized they were working. and They were great ways of getting through to people. Now, principally, and this is a typical sales technique that you'll find, You try and tell the customer about a problem that they're not aware of. And then when you kind of get them aware of the problem, then you help them understand the implication of that problem to their business. And once they understand the impact of what it's costing them, well, the solution then makes a lot of sense. Where did that come from? It's the gospel. Ultimately, that was what was being preached in the pulpits, particularly in America and throughout the world, that we were preaching the fact that there's a problem a lot of people are not aware of. is the problem of sin. And when you make people aware of sin and its consequences and the reality, well, then you come and you bring the gospel. That's what the law is there for. The law is there as a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. It's a very biblical model. But what happened was the business community started looking at some of these people in the church. And you've got individuals like John Blanchard and others in America that they really took this idea and they used it. And you'll find a lot of the successful business people were coming out of the church environment and they started using these ideas to go into the world to start to try and market uh, and sell whatever they were trying to sell, using that same basic principle. Nothing wrong with that, but what then happened is we got the turnaround and we started getting these motivational speakers who were in the world, who were speaking to business and so on, started to come back into the church. But by now, the, the gospel has been completely watered down, and they start just bringing in these kind of self-help messages and these little messages of how you can be a better person and One famous uh, Christian minister who should remain nameless made the comment once that Madonna didn't have a sin problem, it was a self-esteem problem, you know and that's the whole thing now it's not you know we're not, we're not sinners, we've just got low self-esteem, we need to think better of ourselves, and all these ideas have crept back into the church, very sad. God's word has you pushed to one side. And then idolatry. Covetousness. I want. Well, we live in a world that encourages us to want something. You know, the, the situation, Joe and Irene, at the moment, it's been good. You know, because you stop and you look at your own lives and you think, actually, what is important to us? You know, you start thinking, okay, if we need to pay the bills, what can we sell? What, what do we not need? There's a great quote in Quaker quotes, and I love it. It says, Friend, Tell me what you need, and I'll tell you how you can live without it. I love that. Because we we think we need so much. Actually, when it boils down to it, we know we don't need half of the things that we think are important. In fact, you start to realize that so many of the things that we think we need actually are distractions that stop us getting close to God. And so sometimes it's a really good thing that we're put in those positions where we have to do that little spiritual health check and say, okay. What is God in my life? Is it Jehovah? Is it the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Is he really God? Or am I just paying him lip service and there are other things that I'm worshipping? Okay, let's, let's get into it. That was just the introduction. All right, so what we're going to go through in these uh, chapters, uh, and we'll see how far we get. Uh, in the first five verses of chapter four, we're going to see the sins of the people addressed. Uh, and then it's the sins of the priests and we'll talk about this as we go through. Then the idolatry of the people. And then there's a special appeal made, verses 15 to 19, to Judah. Now bear in mind, Hosea is speaking to the northern kingdom of Israel. But an appeal is made to the southern kingdom of Judah, who are watching on and seeing all of these things. And then we're going to have the evil behavior of the priests, the people, and the royal family, all brought to bear as we move into chapter 5. Then it's the promised judgments of Israel and Judah and God's intention to await their repentance. So again, God is promising that judgment is going to come upon Israel and Judah, but that God is going to wait for them to repent. In other words, there's this acknowledgement that they will come to that place of repentance. Sadly, they have to go through the judgment first. At the, so the beginning of chapter 6, there's an appeal that's made specifically to the whole nation to repent. We see the sinfulness of both Israel and Judah then again given to us. And then the wickedness of Israel really unveiled in chapter 7. There's a warning to prepare for foreign invasion. Because of this idolatry and because they had gone to other places to get help rather than going to God. I'm going to derail the study a bit, but a little bit, but it doesn't matter because we're, we're not on a, on a particular schedule. Um, I mean, I, I know you want to go out for lunch, but this is not the point. <laughs> you know, we're going to see brought out here that God is saddened when Israel go to other places for help. And Judah did the same thing. Rather than going to God and saying, God, please help us. We trust in you. I, there's a fantastic example in Second Chronicles in chapter 14 through 16 of King Asa. He defeats this a million a man Ethiopian army that's coming up against Judah. And he defeats them, not because of their military strength or anything else, but because he cries out to God. There's a great line, we rest on thee, our shield and our defender. And in thy name we go against this multitude. He trusted God. And yet a little bit later on, he's in a situation, he's in a war with Baasha, the king of the northern kingdom at the time. And rather than going to God, he goes to the king of Syria and says, would you help us? And one of the prophets comes to him and say, was it because God couldn't save you know, think what God did in, in rescuing you from this great army that had come against you before. When you had no option, you turned to God. But now you think you've got a little bit of strength and you're trusting your own abilities. I'm in, I'm in this really bizarre situation, as I said, with my kind of job at the moment. And I really have been so sure that the Lord is telling me to wait it's the most ridiculous thing from a worldly perspective. All right, the natural mind says, okay, you need a job, go apply for jobs. Just go and apply for a jobs. That's the sensible thing to do, isn't it? And yet God keeps telling me, wait. And I don't know why God keeps telling me to wait, but God keeps saying, wait. And, and, and Joy and I have been talking a lot about this. You know, and I've had other people say to me, well, well I, really, I really think you should choose to apply for jobs. And, and of course there is a balance because we don't want to put God to a foolish test. But at the same time, I don't want to go and forge foreign alliances and go somewhere where God didn't want me to go. Think of the situation with Abraham and Sarah. All right, Abraham is 90, 99 years old. Sarah 90 years old. God has promised them that they are going to have offspring. That that offspring is going to be the line through which the Messiah is going to come. And God is going to bless the world because of Abraham's offspring. And they're getting really old now. And Sarah's talking to Abraham one day, and she's saying, look, we've got to do something about this. I'm not getting any younger. I'm not going to be able to have children. But, you know, God's been really good because he's provided for us. And he allowed us to go down to Egypt. And when we were in Egypt, we, we met Hagar. She was given to me as his handmaid, and we brought her away with us, and we brought her back. And she's kind of part of our family now. And, you know, this surely this is what God intends. This makes so much sense, doesn't it? That God has given you Hagar. And it will be through Hagar that you can have offspring. And we will raise that child as our own. And it will be the child that God can bless. And Abraham's thinking, well, yeah, but is that what God was saying? And, and, and then you can imagine Sarah saying to Abraham, but, you know, just, just trust God. Because, you know, look, you could spend the night with Hagar and like if it's not God's will, she's not going to fall pregnant anyway, is she? And what happened? She did fall pregnant, didn't she? And as a result, And they end up with Ishmael. And Ishmael's descendants in Israel and Abraham and Isaac's descendants effectively have been at war ever since. There's been this contention between them. This problem that Abraham created because he tried to help God out. And it was the most logical, natural thing for them to do. It made so much sense on the surface. And even to the I'm sure God is doing this. It makes sense to us. But what had God's word been to them right from the start? That Sarah was going to bear a child and it was going to be Sarah's offspring through Abraham that was going to be the one that God had promised. We've got to be so careful when we try and help God out. It never ends well. God even took Abraham to the place of being willing to offer up his own son when eventually Isaac was born through Sarah. They get to Mount Moriah, and God says, are you prepared to give up that which I've given you? Are you prepared to put a knife in it effectively? And Abraham, by this point, says, yes, Lord, I trust you. He already told the, the men that had journeyed with him and had waited at the bottom, of, the bottom of Mount Moriah, he'd already said to them, look, we will come back. I will come back to you with Isaac. He made that declaration that we're going up to the, to the mountain to offer sacrifice. He knew that he'd been asked to offer Isaac. But he said, well, we're going to come back. In fact, it's the New Testament Paul says that Abraham knew that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. By that point, he'd he got it. He'd learned to trust God. And it was accounted to him as righteousness, the faith that he had. Do we we want to be a people of faith and trust in God through whom God can do incredible things? Or do we want to to be like Israel in this particular situation that we're going to look at, who forged these foreign alliances because they weren't prepared to trust God because it didn't seem sensible? Then chapter 9 through to chapter 10, Verse 15, we get the captivity of Israel predicted as a result of its iniquity. So those are the things that we're going to be going into. Let's jump into chapter 4 then. We start with God's charge against Israel. We read, hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. That's where it starts. I just want to read this quote to you from Albert Barnes. I read this last night and it just just struck me. He said, God had given the land to the children of Israel on account of the wickedness of Of these whom he drove out before them, he gave it to them that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. He had promised that his eyes should always be upon it from the beginning of the year until the end of the year. This land, the scene of those former judgments given to them on those conditions, the land which God had given to them as their God, they had filled with iniquity. That's the situation. That God had done this incredible miracle, brought them into the land, driven out of the nations that were far stronger than Israel. But as a result of their iniquity, God now says, I've got a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Not the former inhabitants that I drove out, but with you. He says, because there is no truth nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. That's what God says. You know, These these three things, really, are the problem. There's no truth. There's no understanding of what is true. Doesn't that sound just a little bit like this country? We, We kind of reject anything that is kind of true. We don't like the idea of truth because it's too exclusive. We like to be open to all options, don't we? We like to allow everything and everyone now in this country. The idea that anything could be true, of course, denotes that other things are false. Oh, and then that's, that's dangerous, bordering on hate crime, isn't it? To say that something else is wrong—that's where we are right now in this country In Israel. We're right there. These parallels are quite scary when you look at what God brought upon Israel, and you recognise that this country is in the same place. Notice also, there is no mercy. You've only got to drive for 10 minutes in your car to realise there is no mercy. We we drove back from um, Beth's, Joy's mum, on uh, Friday. And we can either come back down the A34 and then kind of across from Southampton, or we can come down the M1. It's it's not a lot of difference in the journey time. Um, But I said to the girls, well, let's let's go kind of via Heathrow, and if we've got time, we'll just nip in and we'll see if we can see a few planes taking off, which would be kind of fun. Well, as we got to almost the bottom of the... um, or to the M25 Junction coming down the M1, um, there were signs saying 90 minute delays on the M25. Turned out there was 35 mile tailbacks. And I thought, don't fancy that with four children in the back of the car. So I said, you know what, let's just go through London. I don't I quite enjoy driving through London. So we just straight down the m uh, bottom of the M1, picked up North Circuit, and kind of went round, and uh, eventually picked up and came out on the A3. And I just find it funny, you know, the number of cars that were getting agitated with each other, you know. And there was a few people that cut in front of us, and Joy was like, well, oh, you've got to be careful up here." And you have. You got to keep your eyes open in London, but, but you know, everybody's trying to get somewhere. And I just don't get wound up by those things. and people just cut in front of me, you know, it's not really a big problem, is it, in the scheme of things? But we live in a country that there is no mercy. Somebody does the smallest thing wrong, and people want revenge. They want to get back at that person. And we've kind of bred that culture so much about our rights. And if somebody wrongs you, there's all manner of people that will tell you how to get back at them. You know, the whole no win, no fee solicitors and those kind of things. And I'm sure you've had phone calls from people that are saying, you know, look, you know, we, we will fight this cause for you. You know, you're entitled to this. There's no mercy in Israel, there's no mercy in this country, it's no different. And not knowledge of God in the land. Well, doesn't that again speak of where we are right now? That there is no real knowledge of God in this land. You know, we, we live in a country that really is devoid of any understanding of who God is. You know, it used to be the case that songs were sung in schools in the morning in assemblies. Prayers were given. We got to Christmas and there was nativity plays. And, you know, now many schools won't even use the word Christmas and they shy away from nativity plays because they don't want to upset other people. Oh, We're allowed to celebrate other religious festivals because that's being inclusive. But when it comes to things about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we have to try and be very careful what we do and don't do. And so many children are growing up with no real understanding of God. No knowledge of the Bible. Well, Israel was just the same. God goes on and says, by swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break out and blood toucheth blood. What does that mean? Well, there was so much bloodshed in the land that before one person had died and their blood had been shed, the next person was effectively dying and the blood from one was running into the blood of another. It was that bad. And you've only got to look at the news and you see how many murders are taking place daily in this country. Now we haven't even started to talk about abortion. There are so many innocent lives taken daily in this country. And God held Israel accountable for these things. Do we think really that God is just going to turn a blind eye to what's going on in this nation? In Romans chapter 1. Out up verse 28, it says this, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, and that's part of the problem, they don't want to think about God. God gave them over to a reprobate mind, to do those things which are not convenient. Notice that God has given Israel, this country, those in the world, over to these things. Being filled with unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, Full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. What a list. That's what Paul is saying. That God has said, yeah, you want it your way, have it your way. And this is what we've ended up with. We didn't want to retain God. We didn't want to keep God in our schools and have times of prayer and times of worship. We've kind of pushed God out. And God said, fine, out of your way. Verse 3, therefore shall the land mourn. Romans 8.22 tells us that all creation is groaning on account of the fall. And here, because of their iniquity, even the land was mourning. It wasn't producing. Everyone that dwelleth therein shall languish. And the beasts of the field and the fowls of heaven. It's affecting everything. It's affecting livestock. It's affecting agriculture. It's affecting the environment. Isn't that interesting? Yea, and the fishes of the sea also shall be taken away. Don't this sound a little bit like our newspapers today to speak of all the problems we're having. How the environment is so much in turmoil. Well, Israel was like that. The land was like that. Animals and birds and everything in the same problem. And we've got the same thing going on today. You know, when people talk about the problems with the environment, say, yeah, I was reading Hosea 4 verse 3. No no doubt we've got those problems. Because we've got the same root causes of those problems. Yet, let no man strive nor reprove another. In other words, don't go pointing your finger at other people and saying, well, it's because of them. For thy people are as they that strive with the priest. It was against the Lord. Deuteronomy 17, verses 8 through 12, tells us that it was uh, a capital crime in Israel to strive with the priest. They were to show respect. But we live in a, a country. Israel, we're in the same situation. There was no sense of propriety anymore. No, no respect, no reverence. And God is saying, you know, you're pointing your finger at other people. You've just become like those that have no respect for authority. Well, we've seen so much of that in the last 18 months, haven't we? Complete disregard for authority. Therefore shall thou fall in the day, and the prophet also shall fall with thee in the night, and I will destroy thy mother. Reference really to Israel as mother. The nation is going to crumble. But notice it's going to fall, because even the prophets, it speaks almost top down, it's collapsing. It's a real mess. Can't help but feel it's the same as this country. That's the first thing that that we get. Then we get the sins of the priests. And Hosea says, My people, God speaking through Hosea, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee, that thou shalt be no priest to me. Seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy God, I will also forget thy children. This is to the priests. It's the priests that have forgotten. Again, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Now, whose fault was it that the people were not taught? It was the priests. It was their job to instruct the people. I mean, you've got great characters in the Bible like Ezra. Ezra who stands up on a platform and and speaks to the people all day long and giving them the understanding of the word. Read the word of God, read the law to them and then explained it. The his my people destroyed for lack of knowledge, and the priests were the ones that he held accountable. Let me ask you this question. Who did God hold accountable in Genesis 3 verse 9? It's the account of the fall of man. Who was it that took of the fruit? It was Eve. Who did God blame? Adam. Why? Because when God gave the command to not eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, Eve was not yet created. That command was given to Adam. And then you find it's after that that God puts Adam into this deep sleep and then creates Eve. Adam is held responsible for instructing his wife. And the fact that she goes ahead and makes this mistake. (laughs) Well, it seems an appropriate word, mistake, does it? Because it's of course. All the problems of the world since that point. But Adam is held accountable. Just here, the priests are held accountable for the state of the nation. Just reading the commentary by Einstein, he said, This light refused, resulting in darkness. Yeah, this is what he's saying because thou hast rejected knowledge. It wasn't that he wasn't available, but it wasn't that they couldn't have learned. It's that he chose not to. They chose not to understand the things of God. They put them out of their mind. They put them to one side. Made them feel uncomfortable. That's why a lot of people don't go to church, because it makes them feel uncomfortable. Brings them face to face with the truth. And light refused will result in darkness. As they were increased, so they sinned against me. Therefore, I will change their glory into shame. When the glory departs, when the word of God departs, it brings just darkness behind it. They eat up the sin of my people. They set their heart on iniquity. You just speaking again that the, even the priests had chased after these things that the, the rest of the people were getting involved in. Henry Morris, in his commentary, said this, One of the great tragedies in the long war against God has been the defection of so many religious leaders from the true word of God, leading their people into compromise and apostasy. This, sadly, is as true in modern Christendom as in ancient Israel. And how sad it is that so many religious leaders have turned away from the word of God. <laughs> well I live back in Kent wonderful dear friend of mine, he's now gone to be with the Lord. Um, And a minister, an Anglican minister, had had the opportunity to go into the school where my friend's daughter went at the time. And in the uh, assembly he had got up to speak uh, and he completely dismissed the idea of the flood of Noah being a literal event and everything else. uh, And was telling this to these young people. And my friend was a little unhappy about this. And he said, uh, would you come with me and we can have a little friendly conversation with this minister. So I said, I'd love to come. Um, so we went and we had a conversation for about two hours with this minister. Um, and it was like banging your head against a brick wall. It was utterly fruitless. It got to the point that I said, okay, can we just agree on what we do agree on? I said, do we accept that Jesus was real? <laughs> yes, we, we accept Jesus was a real person. Okay. So, presumably, his earthly parents, in terms of Mary and Joseph, were real. Well, yeah, except that. Okay, so can we go as far back as David? Oh, well, I don't know. I mean, David may not be a, a real historical figure. And it got to the point that he said, he didn't, didn't accept that Abraham was a real historical character. And it just at that point, I just like, This this is pointless. There is no point having this conversation, speaking to somebody who completely disregards the word of God and tells us that, well, that's not really, that's not true, that didn't happen, that's not history. Nonsense. Very blessed during the week on Tuesday evening, the Milton Keynes Roots group, um, Lani showed us a great video uh, looking at discoveries in Israel that verify that David really was a king in Israel the time, the Bible says, and there's incredible archaeological discoveries that have been made. Uh, these aren't, aren't just, you know, ideas. That were before. These are now firm, historical, established facts. And it's like everything we read in the Bible. You know, eventually, archaeology and science, all well, they all catch up. The Bible never needs to be changed, never needs to be rewritten. You know, science books need to be updated, they need to be changed, they need to be amended as we discover more. The Bible never needs to change. Everything the Bible says is, is firm, it's true. Matthew fontaine Maury read in Psalms, there's pathways in the sea. That's what it says in Psalms. So he thought, I wonder if there are. He went out to check, and yes, he found pathways in the sea. That led to the science of oceanography. You know, there's incredible statements given by Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes and elsewhere in Proverbs that we now have gone out and checked and found it absolutely as was said was true. Leviticus 17, 11 says, the life of the flesh is in the blood. We now know that's true. You know, for many years, they adopted the, the process of bloodletting. You know, the idea that you kind of like siphon your blood off, and it would kind of get rid of all the toxins and impurities in your system, and then they find out actually without blood, you don't do too well. That's apparently how George Washington died. At the time, even not that long ago, they thought it was the right thing. Of course, if they'd have just read the Bible, the is always right, always proven to be so. But the religious leaders in Israel at this time had rejected God's word. And they shall be like people, like priests. And I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their doings. The priests weren't going to give it, be given any special treatment. They transgressed just as the people. For they shall eat and not have enough. They shall commit hoard and we shall not increase. Because they have left off to take heed to the Lord. This is quite interesting in a sense. There's an irony here. Because the worship of Baal was supposed to ensure fertility of the soil and fertility of the womb. To produce offspring of the ground and then obviously offspring, um, children and so on. So, as says, the sake of the Lord will result in insatiable hunger and fruitless you know, So that which they thought they were going to get by going after what they wanted... Well, they've got the exact opposite of. Whoredom and wine and new wine take away the heart. There's A lot said in Scripture about the danger of alcohol and the way it can take people away from God. And of course, and adultery and so on pull people away from God's plan, God's ideals. Look at the idolatry of the people. My people ask counsel. Are their stocks? And we're talking about stocks, we're talking about lumps of wood. You know, you see the tree, you've gone out, you see the tree that's chopped down, and there's just a the stump of it left there. Well, this is typically what they were doing, and they were kind of taking these lumps of wood that have been chopped down and things, and they were kind of carving out of them some sort of figures, and they pretend that they were their gods. I mean, if your god has to be made with a hammer and a chisel, you've probably got the wrong god. If you can pick up your God and take your God home, then you've probably got the wrong God. And then their staff declare it unto them. This is what they would do. So typically they'd have their stick, their staff, and they would drop it on the ground and see which way it pointed and It would give them some sort of direction about what they should do next. Oh, we just as foolish today, aren't we? We have horoscopes and all those kind of things that people... Follow after and daily star signs that they think that if they kind of read this, then it's gonna tell them what's gonna happen this day. And it's always something so stupid and nonsensical, you're gonna meet somebody that will ask you a question. Okay. Yeah, you know, but people try to interpret these things and try and use it as a rule for life. Now, the only rule for life is God's word. But the spirit of whoredoms has caused them to err and they have gone a whoring from under their God. I like that expression there, from under their God. Because God speaks of having us under the shadow of his wing, protecting us. And they've come out from under that protection. You know what it's like if it's a really rainy day and you've got an umbrella. You come out from under that umbrella, you're going to get wet. That was the way it was in Israel they'd come out from under the protection of God because they'd rejected God. So the one true God had been replaced by non-gods. The work of men's hands. And people were worshipping their own endeavors did Doesn't it sound a little bit like today? They sacrificed upon the tops of the mountains and burnt incense upon the hills. So this is something we find a lot in, in uh, Kings and Chronicles and so on it speaks about the high places and what they would do they'd go find a, a, a mountain top or a top of a hill and they'd build some sort of shrine there because it would give them a better vantage point to look up in the sky and to see the stars and they of course worship the stars the sun, the moon and so on and so these, pla- these places became centres and places of idolatry and they were sacrificing there under oaks and poplars and elms, because the shadow thereof is good. Therefore your daughters shall commit whoredom and your spouses shall commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they commit whoredom, nor your spouses when they commit adultery. And what it's saying here is, I'm not just going to punish the women, because it's for themselves I separate. The idea is that the men are just as bad. The men were actually leading and the women were following. So it's not just that the men can say, well, look at these women, what they're doing, and they should be judged for this. And God is saying, no, 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 look, my contention is with these men. For they are separated with whores, and they sacrifice with harlots. Therefore the people that does not understand shall fall. And now this appeal is made to Judah. Though thou, Israel, play the harlot, yet let not Judah offend. Okay, so it's saying, okay, look at, Look at Israel. Look at what's going on. Look at the mistakes they're making. Judah, don't follow them. And come, not ye unto Gilgal, neither go ye up to beth nor swear the Lord liveth. Now, beth was a small town near Bethel. And they're often used synonymously. Okay, so Bethel was the place Abraham had camped. It becomes known as the house, Beth-El is the house, Beth in Hebrew is Beth, house, El, the name of God, Elohim. So Beth-El is the house of God. But Beth-Avon was right next to it. and Hosea seems to be using the label contemptuously, renaming Bethel, the house of God, as Beth-Avon, the house of vanity. So it's almost like a play on words here in the text. And Gilgal and Bethel, or Beth-Avon, were seedbeds of idolatry though formerly had been Elisha's school. It was the school of the prophets. But it had now become a site of idols. You know, how many schools of the prophets in this country have become places where idols are embraced and adopted and worshipped? And I'm talking about Bible colleges, so-called. You know, so many of the Bible colleges that were founded by godly men to teach godly principles, speaking the word of God, teaching the word of God, have been given over to all sorts of modern ideas and interpretations, liberal theology. These places, of course, have become synonymous with the rejection of Yahweh. Interestingly, a minister that I knew some years ago had gone to Spurgeon's Bible College in London, and I think it's been renamed since that point. I don't think they call it Bible College anymore, because we don't want to be too exclusive. Um, So, uh, but he was saying that I think in his year, two people committed suicide that had gone through for ministerial training. And their faith had been so shaken that they couldn't cope anymore. For Israel, slide is back as a backsliding heifer. What a great expression that is. The idea is a big cow that you're trying to move and it's sliding backwards. Imagine trying to push a cow up a hill and it's just sliding backwards. God is saying, Israel are just like that. They're so stubborn, they're just too hard to move. Now the Lord will feed them as a lamb in a large place. In other words, okay, so God's going to give them this kind of open pasture land where they're like a lamb and they're all happy, but all that's happened is they're running out of room. They're getting ready for judgment. So God's saying, okay, I'm going to give you all this. And then, and I think we're going to leave it here this morning. There's so much more we can could, we could go on, but we've got, you know, Next week and so on until the Lord comes back. We'll keep going. Uh, Verse 17 goes on. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Now Ephraim, this expression is used 37 times in Hosea. It's a synecdoche for the northern kingdom. In other words, it's it's an expression that's used. Because Ephraim was one of the largest geographical areas in the northern kingdom, this is used to speak of the whole of the northern kingdom. But it's this expression, let him alone. I'm going to come to this, because this idea of joined, the Hebrew word you can see is chabah there, uh, is yoked to, cleaving to, being merged with. Ephraim, the northern kingdom, has become joined with, like in marriage, where you cleave to one another. The idea of cleaving in marriage is the idea of breaking apart, but also joining back together and fitting together tightly. And of course, in marriage, that's right, because you, you separate from your, your father and your mother and you're joined to your wife. So there's a great word in Hebrew to really express what marriage is all about. But the idea here is that Israel have done exactly the same thing. They were cleaving to their idols are becoming joined to them. So sad. Now this let him alone. I think it was Job chapter 7 verse 16 I was reading this morning. And Job basically says there, let me alone. He's talking to his friends who are trying to offer him some counsel. If you've read Job, you'll know that there wasn't particularly good counsel. It wasn't good advice. They were only making it harder. He was already in enough trouble himself with all these kind of boils and sores all over his body. And he was scraping himself daily with these uh, bits of pottery just to get rid of all the. I drink tea, You've got lunch coming up. Um, you get the idea. Um, you know, and Job is that place of saying, oh, just leave me alone. Let me alone is what he says. That's what Job says. It's just go away and leave me. Well, this is scary because God says let him alone. Let Israel alone. In other words, not go away and leave me, but I'm going to go away and leave. Again, that verse I read to you from Romans earlier. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. Ironside says this. Remember that when you act in accordance with the mind of God, as made known to you through his word, your path shines brighter and brighter unto the perfect day. On the other hand, revealed truth, willfully ignored, or still worse, refused, has a hardening effect upon the conscience. And he goes on and says this. Joined to idols, let him alone. Quoting that verse we just read. Nothing can be more solemn than this. It is as though God had exhausted every possible means for their recovery, save one. And that one, the giving them up to learn by bitter experience what they would not take to heart in any other way. In the New Testament, it answers to being delivered unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That comes from 1 Corinthians. And an individual is involved in, in sin, he wouldn't repent. And so Paul's counsel to the Corinthians, he said, okay, give him over to Satan. You know, the idea of all of this is, you, know, you want the world, go have it. Go at it, go and take your full of it. Reminds us of the prodigal son, doesn't it? That's exactly what he did. And what happened? He wasted everything on his righteous living and ended up eating pig's food. And then, repentantly, he comes home to his father. What a great picture of all of this that God is saying to Israel. Just to complete that quote from my insight, he says, Observe, it is only after the failure of all other means to recover the wanderer that God so deals with souls. God doesn't want to do this. He didn't want to do it to Israel. He doesn't want to do it to this nation. He He doesn't want to do it to us individually. But you know, if we will not turn around from that path of sin, there remains only this kind of option. You know, there's some warnings in the book of Hebrews. Scary warnings. About losing the gift of repentance. I'm not derailed by going into that in depth, but it's a scary thought that you come to a place where you no longer feel the pain of sin anymore when you get so accustomed to it so comfortable with it that it becomes fairly normal and you think that God's not all that bothered about it either because there's no apparent judgment well that's the place Israel were at I, I said we stop there but let's just run we only got a couple of verses to the end of the chapter and then we'll stop they drink sour they've committed order continually Her rulers with shame do love give ye, yeah, that give ye your in the Hebrew It's go on or get on with it, it's the same idea God is letting them go. He said, okay, off you go. Go get on with it. And then he says, verse 19, the wind has bound her up in her wings. It is as if the wind is blowing. You know, you've all seen a, you know, a crisp packet or you know, some wrapper on the ground on a windy day. and The wind, the wind catches, or even just a leaf. Probably a better expression because we you know, to keep... Uh, sorry. Think about the, the climate, environment and everything else. Um, you know, Think about leaf the way the wind just picks up and blows it and it's just gone. And that's what he's saying Israel is going to be like. The wind has bound her up in the wings and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Because of the things they've given themselves over to. And God is really saying, okay, have it your way. But we will leave it there really looking forward to the rest of it, because there's so much more in these these coming chapters. Uh, And at the end of chapter 5, we get a really staggering statement, uh, which speaks of that time when Israel will come back to the Lord. And as we go into chapter 6, a really interesting verse that speaks of, I believe, the millennial kingdom and what is coming. So, read ahead, chapter 5, almost from next week, just bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you are, by your grace, giving us the opportunity to see... Lord, what this nation is like. And Lord, if you did not spare Israel on account of their iniquity, for the violence, for the bloodshed, for the immorality, then Lord, how can we expect you to spare this country? And so, Father, we pray for mercy for this country. We pray for the eyes of our politicians to be opened to that which is true. May they not reject the truth. But we pray also, Lord, for the church. We pray for the priests, as it were, in our nation those that are leading your people, that they would speak the truth in love. That you would give, Lord, those in pulpits, Lord, a hunger and a thirst for righteousness and for your word. And that your people will be instructed that they may then go and teach and encourage and witness to others. Lord, thank you. By your mercy, you let us see these things before it's too late that we can intercede. Lord, we just pray now that you impress these things upon our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.